They say when you get older, the years go by faster. <laughs> Oops. <laughs> I don't know about you, but this year has flown by, and, uh, and I can't believe it, but if you're involved in church calendars, next weekend, next Sunday, is a brand new calendar year. And as we do every year, during the last few weeks of the current liturgical year, we begin to think about the end times. I mean, what's going to be happening? We all want to know. I want to know the answers. I want the Lord to issue me a periscope so I can see over the hills and around corners. And He does not. He says, take this lamp. You're going to have to walk 15 feet before you can see the next 15. But we do learn some things from Scripture as we approach these last weeks of the year. And all of it comes to a focus today when we turn our gaze and fix it squarely on Jesus as King of kings and Lord of lords. So I would like for us to think about what in the world that might mean for us today. And I'd like to think about it in these two ways. To think of the two faces of Christ the King. The one we have seen... And the one we will see, the one we have seen, the world has seen more than its fair share of rulers. And with very few exceptions, our experience has been pretty consistent and can be summed up in the words of Sir John Dalbert Acton in a letter he once wrote to the Anglican Archbishop Mandel Creighton way back in 1887. Lord Acton wrote this, Power tends to corrupt, and absolute power corrupts absolutely. History of humanity has been filled with rulers that fell victim to this truth. In fact, even God's people were not spared. If you read through the Bible, you will have to search very, very hard to find the few kings in Israel's history who were not followed by this text in Scripture. He did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. He did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. Why? Because power corrupts. Absolute power corrupts. Absolutely. So the people back then, just as they do today under a despot, they longed for a king who would be different. And God promised that the day would come when he would send them just such a king. And so we hear these words that God spoke to us through the prophet Jeremiah. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he shall reign as king and deal wisely and execute justice and righteousness in the land. And the people all went, yay! And then they waited. And they waited. And they waited some more. In fact, they waited about 600 years until in God's perfect timing, something happened in first century Palestine. 
You remember that in the beginning of the first century in Palestine, Herod the Great was the Roman lackey who reigned over the Jews. Emperor Tiberius Caesar, a Roman general turned Caesar, ruled the whole empire, and Roman troops were stationed throughout Israel proper. God's people had all but given up hope that the Lord would raise up this great king like David, who would drive out their oppressors and reestablish Israel as the center of focus for the whole world's attention. But we know the story. We're about to rehearse it again. God sent His Son Jesus to fulfill the promise. He was born in a stable in Bethlehem. And right there we begin to see His kingship is not going to be what anyone was expecting. They were looking for David on steroids. Instead they got an infant born in a forgotten corner of the world. Instead of a lavish lifestyle, this king chose simplicity. Instead of demanding to be served, he insisted on serving. Instead of boasting worldly power, he demonstrated humility. Instead of dishing out suffering to others who crossed his path, he chose to receive suffering at their own hands. Perhaps his whole approach to kingship could best be summed up on the night before his death. We remember the story. Jesus gathers in the upper room with his disciples. They're going to celebrate the Passover. They're having the meal. And then right in the middle of dinner, Jesus gets up and he lays aside his outer garment. And he goes and he binds a towel around his waist, picks up a bowl and a pitcher full of water, and proceeds to wash each disciple's feet in turn and then to dry them off. And the disciples are mortified. I mean, they're mortified. Because Jesus has now performed the task given to the lowest servant in a household. I mean, they had a pecking order even among servants, didn't they? And if you were the new boy on the block and it came time to wash everybody's nasty feet that came to visit, that was your assignment. And here was Jesus, who they just said, you're the Messiah. washing their feet and drying them off. John recalls it this way in his gospel. When Jesus had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, Do you understand what I've done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you should also do just as I have done to you. The world understands kings like Caesar. We get the fact that there are rulers who have power of life and death over their subjects, who actually can bend people's will to their own by fear. What the world didn't understand then and doesn't understand today is a king like Jesus. Remember on the night he was arrested? They brought him to Pilate. 
Listen to this conversation. Pilate enters his headquarters and called Jesus and said to him, he's the Roman procurator, are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered, do you say this of your own accord or did others say it to you about me? Pilate answered, am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might be delivered, might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from the world. Then Pilate said to him, so you are a king. What we don't understand, we destroy. And destroying Jesus and his kingdom seemed as simple as a quick trip to Calvary. A few hours later, problem solved. The world could get back to its business as usual. What the world didn't count on was a resurrection. Jesus raised victorious over sin and death, changed the equation of what it means to be a king. He really is a son of God. He really is king of all creation, whether creation or any part of it recognizes or acknowledges that or not. And what that means is that the expectations he laid out for those of us who follow him are not the muses of some poor, misguided carpenter's kid who was sacrificed on a cross some considerable years ago, but rather the commandments of the Lord whose throne is heaven and who has earth for a footstool. Commandments which can be summed up in his own words. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind, and you shall love your neighbors yourself. Now, I had a seminary professor who used to say to us, boys, it is not the few passages in Scripture that I have a hard time understanding that give me the greatest difficulties. It's the ones that are all too clear. Can this be more clear? Shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. But here's the deal. We, we don't have a Lord who demands that we follow His rules by force. We have a Lord who woos us by His own love to want to love others the same way. The Apostle John put it simply. We love because He first loved us. And when a person has felt the love of Jesus deeply in his or her heart, it changes us forever. And when we are changed forever, we just want to love him back. And we want to turn around then and love other people like he asked us to do. And the only way we can do that, of course, is to have eyes to see other people the way he sees them because the Lord always sees other people as of so much value that they're worth his own life. So how much does that make a person worth? A thousand bucks? A hundred thousand? A million? It makes us priceless. If your value is the life of the Son of God, it makes every human being's life priceless. Jesus sees us 
as so valuable, it's worth the cross. In a world which idolizes power and position and property, that kind of love makes no sense. But it changes lives. One of my heroes of the faith was a five-foot-tall Albanian nun who founded the Missionaries of Charity to look to the needs of the poorest of the world's poor. She came to be known to the rest of the world as Mother Teresa. And early on in her ministry, she established the Home for the Dying in Calcutta, India. Somebody asked her one time how in the world she could manage to pour her life out in the worst possible physical circumstances to people who didn't have her faith or who had no faith at all. I want to know what she said. Our work is only the expression of the love we have for God. To us, what matters is an individual. Every person is Christ for me. And since there is only one Jesus, that person is the one person in the world at that moment. I'm not like Mother Teresa, but I want to love like her. I want to learn how to do that. I want to learn how to empty myself. I want to learn how to see other people the way she saw other people. To see Christ in them. Now, I know talk's cheap. That's the problem. And that's my problem. It is easy for me to, to see images of people on TV or to even walk past them on the street and to think to myself, oh, that poor person. Gosh, I'm so sorry for them. I, I'll tell them I'm going to pray for them, and I'm going to tell them, please go in peace, be warmed and fed without doing one actual practical thing for them. And I'm not alone. It, we're, not, we're not bad people. We just get overwhelmed by the cares and occupations of our own life. We get wrapped up in our own problems, so wrapped up in our own problems that we just don't have eyes to see what's going on around us sometimes. This is made easy when we get so distracted by the cares and occupations of life that we forget about the resurrection. We forget about the kingship of Jesus. We forget about the commandments He's given us. And we forget that there was a time when He said this, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. And that leads us straight into the eyes of the one that someday we will see. We had best remember that the other face of Christ the King will happen. And one day Jesus will come to earth, not as he did the first time, as a gentle lamp, but as the Lion of Judah, 
who comes to judge, to put all things right, to establish a new kingdom, a new world. In the revelation to John, the Lord revealed this image to him. Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. This is the same picture of Jesus that we have from this morning's gospel. He says, when I do come, I'm going to be separating people from people. I'm going to be separating sheep from goats. And that picture is at one and the same time, depending on what your current situation is, either terrifying or comforting. It's terrifying for those who plan on getting into heaven because they're nice. I'm nice. I'm nice. I'm as nice as my neighbor. I'm better than my neighbor, actually. Nice is not enough. It leaves you in your basic default position. You know what your basic default position is? You're a sinner. Paul says this, no one is righteous, not one. All have sinned. Mother Teresa has sinned. Billy Graham has sinned. And so have you. And so have I. And if I'm trying to get into heaven by being nice, I'm in trouble. Because we all know that sin separates. It separates from each other. We're aware of that. But it also separates us from God. And if God's a source of your life and you don't take a breath without His permission, to be separated from God is to be separated from the source of your life. And if you are separated from the source of your life, there's a consequence, isn't there? We call that consequence death. The only way by which a man or woman might be saved is through faith in Jesus so that we get covered by His blood which washes away that sin. There's another group of people who are going to be terrified. And these are the people who believe but it has made no difference in their lives. We all know who they are. They may be us. These are the people who said, hey, I walked the aisle when I was 13. Hadn't changed my life at all. Still live exactly like I want to, but hey, I believe there was a Jesus. I got baptized when I was two, okay? I am born again. 
But it hasn't made any difference in my life. It doesn't make any difference in your life. You could be in trouble. Here's the truth. While nobody can earn his or her way into heaven, faith without works is not counted by God as faith at all. Jesus said, even the demons believe and shudder. Excuse me, James said, even the demons believe and shudder. For, for those of us who really do believe, we understand that love is not simply a noun, it's a verb for us. It presses us to do things. Jesus' image is comforting for those of us who are trying to live our faith out day by day. Gosh, we, we're just, we got clay feet. We stumble on a regular basis. We have good days and bad days. We have times when we feel really, really close to the Lord and times when He seems really, really far away. But we who have been loved much can't help but try and love back. Perhaps that most eloquent testimony to a person who wants to love Jesus back is when we allow Him to give us His eyes to see what's going on around us. To not pass by human suffering unawares. And by the way, it doesn't simply have to do with poverty, does it? There are people suffering in million-dollar homes. There are people whose lives are out of control all around us, maybe our own lives from time to time, and, and they need our help. They need the gospel of Christ. They need practical somebody who's going to come alongside them and weep when they're weeping and cry when they're crying and rejoice when they rejoice, to clothe them if they happen to be naked, to give them a home if they happen to be homeless, to feed them if they happen to be hungry, to give them a job if they're looking for a job. Why? Because we're trying to see Jesus in every man and woman and child around us and to treat them the way we would treat Jesus if he was in that circumstance. Then the righteous will answer the Son of Man saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you drink? And the king will answer them, Truly I say to you, as you did it to the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. The biblical word for that kind of love is agape. We use it all the time. It means committed, sacrificial love. The kind of love that's a decision. The kind of love that has very little to do with how you happen to feel at a given moment. How else could we love our enemy? No, it's a decision. It's a decision that says, I'm going to love, allow the love that Jesus has poured into me to flow through me and pour into that person. I'm going to be thinking about the beloved and not myself. When we offer ourselves up and ask the Lord to teach us how to love like that, the good news is He will take us up on our offer and He'll begin to change our lives. 
through the power of the Holy Spirit, He will begin to, to transform us little bit by little bit every single day. Christ the King Sunday. The day when we think on the two faces of the King. The King we have seen who came as a lamb to lay down His life for us. And in so doing, to teach us what real love looks like. And the King who we will see as the lion who will come to judge us on how well we've lived our faith out with that same kind of love. We close once again with Mother Teresa's words. Our work is only the expression of the love we have for God. To us, what matters is the individual. Every person is Christ for me. And since there is only one Jesus, that person is the one person in the world at that moment. Let us pray. Well, God, our Heavenly Father, on this Christ the King Sunday, we thank you for the two faces of Jesus. We thank you for the gentleness of the Lamb and the way he teaches us to love and bids us to follow that love. And we remember Christ when we will see him again. And he comes as the Lion of Judah. Lord, use us as your instruments. Let your love that you pour into us flow through us to make a difference in the lives of those around us. May we see you in every man, in every woman, in every child. We ask it in your son's holy and precious name. Amen.